This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two agencies officially have new leaders tonight. Kieran Ahuja will take over at the Office of Personnel Management. The Senate split on party lines 50-50 to confirm her. Vice President Kamala Harris's vote in favor of confirmation broke that tie. Robin Carnahan is in as administrator of the General Services Administration. Her path to confirmation was a lot easier. The Senate confirmed her unanimously. Carnahan served at GSA during the Obama administration. The House Appropriations Subcommittee bill that covers federal employee pay provides for a 2.7 percent raise for 2022. Technically, the bill doesn't say anything at all about a raise. Federal News Network reports that silence in the bill means the House will defer to President Biden's proposal for the 2.7% raise. Welcome back to Small Business Administration's closing the Paycheck Protection Program. It's awarded nearly $800 billion during the pandemic. Sanjay Gupta is the chief technology officer at SBA. Sanjay, welcome. It's great to have you back on the program. What did you and your colleagues at SBA learn from having to stand this program up almost instantaneously, blow out more money than anybody's ever expected, and then shut it down now as you transition to what the next phases are of responding to the pandemic? Right. Uh, hello, Francis, and thank you for having me back on your show always glad to be with you and uh, help you know share the news the good news from the SBA standpoint so in regards to your question of course um, as most everybody is aware of uh, SBA found itself at the forefront of the nation's largest ever ever recovery initiative and the programs you referenced PPP and IDLE were part of that uh, nation's uh, economic recovery initiatives so immediately back in March of 2020 uh, the first order of business was how do we get these programs uh, mobilized and also be able to process the large volumes of transactions we were expecting? So it was an exponential scaling overnight, obviously, and, and some of the foundational work that, uh, as you may remember, I had had the opportunity to lead back in 17 and 18 in terms of setting up the cloud foundation and so on and so forth was really instrumental in our ability to scale up uh, and be able to serve to the nation's largest ever economic recovery initiative. And as you can imagine, you know, as the programs evolved and as the Hill had the opportunity to, you know, refine and fine tune the programs, uh, our focus had to become increasingly uh, sharper. And so that has been continuing on. And as you now noted, uh, the current version of that program has come to a close uh, based on the statutory requirements. But uh, who knows, uh, you know, it might reopen again. I went back and watched our conversation when we came and focused on the work that you and your colleagues, Maria wrote at the time, was the CIO at SBA. You and I talked about the kind of the building blocks that you were laying then, not obviously anticipating a black swan event like this necessarily, <laughs> but what, what of those building blocks was most useful for you when not just the PPP rollout, but all of your employees were working remotely pretty much, weren't they, Sanjay? Yes, that's correct, Francis. And I think the if I had to pick one thing, the theme I would say is modernization. But to be more specific, I would say the cloud foundation that uh, I had the opportunity to lead and establish back in 17, as you may remember, we had talked when we had met a couple of times earlier, 
that Cloud Foundation helped us back in 17 when the three major disasters, Harvey, Irma, and Maria had it uh, in us ability to scale up quickly. Uh, and then um, now, of course, nobody had foreseen this Black Swan event, like you mentioned, but certainly that foundation has served us immensely in our ability to uh, be able to exponentially scale up. Uh, specifically in terms of the maximum telework, uh, the other aspect I would say is the cloud-based cybersecurity foundation I'd helped establish back in 1718 again, that allowed us to scale up infinitesimally quickly. Uh, as, as you may know, the SBA also scaled up from a staffing standpoint and at the peak capacity, we were probably 4X the size we were pro-COVID, uh, pre-COVID. And um, what that means is all of these people working remotely, we had to ensure that we had a strong cybersecurity posture. And also these individuals were in a, a good position to provide the business continuity of the operations of the SBA. Uh, and so that cloud foundation has served us immensely well in our ability to respond and, and be able to respond to the, the changing dynamic needs of the pandemic. I want to ask you a question, Sanjay, that maybe is more philosophical than it is tactical. I imagine when you and your colleagues were dealing with those three hurricanes back to back to back, you thought it couldn't get much worse than this. We couldn't be under much more demand than this. And then you fast forward three years and you have a pandemic that's completely unprecedented in the last hundred years. Does that make a good argument, do you think, that organizations in government should be thinking two, three, five years ahead and, and that Congress should be thinking two, three, five years ahead to give them the resources they need in order to really accelerate these modernization plans? Uh, I would say the simple answer is yes, with an emphatic yes. Uh, and let me kind of expound on that a bit. Uh, nobody can predict what the conditions are and we've seen in the last 14 months, right? And what we need to be aware of and be ready with is respond to whatever the situation demands and nobody can predict what that situation will be. The changing business conditions will change in a blink of an eye like we now see in hindsight they did. But here's my point. I think one thing or two things that have come out of this pandemic and I'll make a broad uh, sweeping statement on this is regardless if you were in the public sector, private sector, not-for-profit, academia, one thing was become very clear. IT plays a critical role in the mission and the delivery of your mission for any business organization across the world. The second part is organizations that were using more modern technologies were far better positioned to respond to the changing business needs. We at the SBA also saw that. And we noted the differences in cases where we were in a more modern state versus other areas where we were not so modern. So, so in terms of your question, I would say emphatically, yes, we need to be looking and be able to be in a position to respond in an agile manner, in a nimble fashion, but ultimately the business mission demands those things you know, to be ready at a moment's notice. Sanjay Gupta, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you so much, Francis. Coming next, the climate fight moves to space. Straight ahead on Government Matters, NOAA's plan to fight back using IT in orbit. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Sponsored by Chaniga Applied Solutions.
National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration is combining its assets in information technology and space to learn more about how climate affects lots of things the government does. The agency uses those assets to predict trends. Deke Arndt is chief of the Climatic Science and Services Division at NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Information. Deke, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are all of the assets that you have at your disposal to understand what is happening now in climate, to reference it against what you know in the past, and to prepare for what's coming in the future? Thanks a bunch. So the, the number one asset we have are the data and the observations collected over decades and centuries so that we have a baseline to compare to. So a big part of the infrastructure of what we do is, is arranging that data. Uh, all of the uh, weather and climate observations that have come in from around the world over the past decades and centuries, and we take today's observations and lay those on top of that. And as you're getting at, that's that's a, a very IT dependent, very IT heavy. You need a lot of infrastructure and computing capacity to be able to crank through the world's history and generate reports that, that people need to do good commerce uh, in the US and around the world. How is that collection different now than it was say five years ago or 10 years ago? And do you have an expect, is it possible to anticipate how you expect that data collection to be different moving forward? So we're entering an era, an era with a lot of satellite-based observations, and this is something that uh, started in the late 20th century and continues today. So the, the volumes of data that are generated by many space-based platforms is uh, increasingly large, and that's because that's one of the big challenge, kind of technological challenges that those of us in the climate sciences space is uh, we are generating a, a heck of a lot of data now through computer models, through satellites, and then through uh, more traditional observing uh, systems. And getting those all into one place and running through those in a rigorous way uh, remains a, a challenge. Is the data that you're collecting coming in greater volumes because you're able to collect more stuff, like maybe satellite-based stuff that you weren't able to collect before you had access to a constellation of satellites? Or is it just because there, there are more things that you're measuring? So it's largely driven by uh, increased precision uh, resolution in the observing systems. So radar before satellites and now satellites are capable of seeing the world at much smaller pixelation. And each one of those pixels of the things that we observe uh, is, is a number effectively. And so there are many more, the mesh that we that the satellites see the world through um, is much finer and and that means much larger data volumes so most of the increase in the volume that we see are new systems coming online and those systems having a, a very high resolution uh, capability to observe the earth which generates a lot of numbers how does that help you and your colleagues do your jobs better what are you able to obtain through the higher resolution what are you able to know that you weren't able to know or know as well before? So uh, things like precipitation, you know, those have a, largely have a hard edge. So seeing uh, the, the boundary where a lot of rain fell and maybe on the other side of that boundary, there are still drought conditions, being able to zoom in better on those conditions to provide what we call spatial resolution. Uh, in general, most, uh, most folks want more local data and this higher resolution capacity helps see things with a, with a more local flavor. Um, the, the broad brush, big picture climate system uh, analysis is still very important, the story of our planet, um, but the, 
we're also increasingly asked to help uh, inform the story of our lives and our lives are local and getting that information on the ground uh, where we are uh, is an important part of NOAA's mission. Deke, I apologize if this is a rookie question, but do you have more satellites to, to bring you data or are they more, are the ones that you have more capable? What's the infrastructure look like for, for NOAA in space? So satellites, there are, are, are several families of satellites. There are large satellites that uh, sit over a spot. We call them uh, geostationary satellites, and they take a look at, at, at roughly half the planet uh, from a long ways up. And then there are, are many satellites that orbit at a lower uh, uh, altitude, and they take more detailed pictures of the, of the planet. The combination of those kind of helps us see through the depth of the atmosphere, the oceans, and even out towards um, uh, space weather that's occurring on the Earth. Um, the, the, the constellation of satellites um, is growing, um, and that's not just a, a NOAA thing, that is a, 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 the, both the public and private sector around the world are putting more observing platforms, putting more satellites and instruments into space, and that, that is generating more data. Does the fact that there's more stuff up there make NOAA's job easier, harder, or is it neutral? Uh, it, it, that probably depends on who you would ask within <laughs> NOAA. You know, uh, folks who are making forecasts and analyses, we, we always think, hey, more data is better. Um, managing those systems, uh, keeping track of the data, uh, putting it away for safekeeping, you know, uh, more volume is, is, is obviously a, a larger challenge. It's, it's more work. So um, I think in the, in the big picture, a well-observed planet is, a, is, is healthier for all of us. And so we're all willing to do um, what it takes to get more data uh, into the hands of people who need to make the decisions based on that data. Deke, we have about a minute left. There was a period of time where the data collection in, in, in all types, not just in, in climate prediction, was exponential. And it seems to have kind of leveled off a little bit. Maybe it's not exploding to the degree that it was exploding, say, five years ago. Are you seeing that in your area of expertise, or does the exponential growth of data continue apace in your view? So I, I, I'm a climate scientist within a data center, and that exponential pace is definitely still going. Um, with the uh, these remotely sensed systems, you know, while the numbers of uh, instruments may not be increasing exponentially anymore. The data that they're spitting out, because they're capable of taking such a fine-scale picture, that is still going. So we are still dealing with and, and seeing exponential growth, um, especially in the remotely sensed radar, satellite information, and importantly, the computer model output that helps us understand and describe what's going on in the Earth. So all of those together, uh, we are still seeing quite a bit of growth in, in the volume of data. Deke Arndt of NOAA, I appreciate you being on today. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Up next, five big vulnerabilities in critical supply chains. Straight ahead on Government Matters, advice from agencies to prevent problems the pandemic caused. We archive every episode of Government Matters at govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. Five vulnerabilities drive the White House's new effort on securing supply chains. Agencies including the Departments of Defense, Health and Human Services, Energy and Commerce make six recommendations to prevent the supply chain problems the pandemic caused. 
Chris Eukins is co-director of the Government Procurement Law Program at the George Washington University Law School. Chris, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What's the genesis of this? What do we see as we look at these five vulnerabilities and the six recommendations the agencies make? Uh, what we see is an attempt by the Biden administration to address what were perceived during the pandemic as severe supply chain um, vulnerabilities, uh, especially as those supply chains that we rely on as a, as a federal government and as a nation as those supply chains uh, stretch across international borders. My main takeaway from this, Chris, was the speed at which the, the uh, agencies, the four agencies I listed, undertook this work and have produced these recommendations. What does that say to you about what these agencies have been thinking about already leading up to the, the production of this report uh, about the supply chain vulnerabilities in their areas of expertise? Well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, I think that let's just focus on two of the areas. Uh, one of them is uh, with regards to critical medicines. Uh, in July of last year, the Trump administration, President Trump, uh, issued an executive order calling for um, both an assessment of critical medical supplies and possibly a change in the United States trade obligations regarding those critical medical supplies. With regards to the, the minerals, the, the study that was done by the Defense Department here for the, for the Biden administration's 100-day report, with regards to those critical minerals, such as rare earth, rare earths that are that are relied upon by the defense department those studies have been going on for years so you're absolutely right this is a this is a long-standing effort that came together but came together very rapidly in the 100-day report what do you see here for the agencies involved if the administration if the white house turns around and says okay go do this i like these recommendations go do this who does what inside of these four organizations in your view chris I think it's uh, the, from from the, the the Washington community standpoint. The the interesting question is not only who does what, but um, where are there common points across these these responses? Um, I think that uh, one of the most important areas that we'd see common action is with regards to procurement strategies that the agencies undertake. The agencies are very likely to use funds available under the Defense Production Act, both appropriated funds, and they're likely to go back to Congress to ask for additional funds to fund development of critical supplies in, the, uh, in these, these four important areas, the, including the batteries, the, 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 the large size batteries that will be needed for things like electric vehicles, um, the critical supplies, the critical minerals that are needed by the Defense Department, and then, of course, the, the critical medical supplies. So we can see that, that what we're likely to see is in a combined matter across the Biden administration is a new focus on funded procurement for development. And then the question is what will come after that. And are the procurement strategies that would support this effort in your view already in place or is this something the administration or Congress would have to create, Chris? They, they are. It's really interesting. They are in place. The procurement strategies under the Small Business Innovation Researcher, SBIR program, which is already authorized and run. It's a very successful program run by the Small Business Administration. Those strategies are already in place. And so the question for the business community in Washington is, are those SBIR type strategies which fund development and then create preferred procurement for the actual follow-on production contracts, are those SBIR strategies going to be ramped up for these critical supplies? That seems that the 100-page report, the 100, excuse me, the 100-day report isn't absolutely clear on that point, but it suggests that's the pathway that the agencies will follow. And it also suggests there's a flexibility here for the leadership in the agencies to take advantage of things that already exist. I'm encouraged by the fact that you're telling me 
there's a framework here potentially to meet these recommendations that the administration are, is making to itself basically um, and and not some new infrastructure that would need to be created to try to deal with these supply chain vulnerabilities. That's what I'm hearing. Am I hearing correctly? That's correct. And the SBIR pro uh, program has matured over the years. The initial idea was to take some of the research and development funding that normally goes to large institutions like universities and to take that research and development funding and apply it to small businesses. And the SBIR program has now matured over the years. The SBA has a very clear set of policies and the SBA calls the shots on this. The SBA has the authority to dictate how the SBIR program will run. In a nutshell, what happens is that small businesses will, will qualify for special development funding and then they move through the phases of development finally to production and commercialization. In commercialization, in that third phase, the small businesses have an absolute preference with regards to those small businesses have an absolute preference with regards to procurement, even if they've matured by that point to being a large business. They still have a preference regarding procurement and they own the intellectual property. That's another important piece of the puzzle here, that those businesses funded through development own the intellectual property. So you're absolutely right. There is an existing framework that the agencies could exploit. They could take the relatively minor amount of funding that's normally allocated to the SBIR program and just expand it, or they could pump new funding in through the Defense Production Act. The vehicles, the mechanisms are absolutely in place. 30 seconds left, Chris, and I'll flip the script. If I'm a company, how do I use this as business intelligence? Um, it, that's a very interesting point. I, I think that you, if you're a company with innovative technologies in these critical areas um, that, that have been identified, including, for example, the, the critical minerals or critical medical supplies, if you're a company with innovative technology, be aware that those small businesses that can go through an SBIR type mechanism, they may have an inside track. So look look to partner with those small businesses that might have that inside track. Chris Eukins, terrific conversation. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Francis. Take care. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email address in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time 
about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, stop stop the presses start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's what's needed uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today we just have uh, 20 seconds left tony you have you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract it sounds like oh absolutely it's 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 critical it's the right time the technology is very very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.